Good morning, I'm Brandon Barrett, lead pastor here at Grace Covenant. If you're visiting, I'd like to also extend a warm welcome to you. We're glad that you're here with us. You find us near the end of a series on the book of James, and that's where we'll be turning this morning. James chapter 5, if you're using one of our pew Bibles, chair Bibles, you'll find that on page 1013. As you turn in there, let, let me ask you a couple questions. I mean... I, as we've seen several times with James, several times meaning every week in James, James is one of those uh, pastors and, and one of those writers in Scripture that he is, he is always uncomfortably close. You know, he's just, he's just a little too close in his questions for us, in his examination of our lives. And we're going to see this morning that he commits one of the um, almost unfor- unforgivable social faux pas of actually talking to us about our money and doing that in a very pointed way. But as, as we get ready to turn there, let me ask you this question. What would it look like for you in your life for you to be financially free? Okay, you hear those words, financial freedom. What would that mean for you? I mean, maybe for some of us, it would mean able to pay off all our bills at the end of the month. We're able to finally pay off our credit card debts, maybe pay off your house or pay off your children's college tuition. Maybe it would mean buying a second house or a better car. Financial freedom, maybe for you, it would mean being able to uh, have, have such plentiful money that you didn't really have to keep that close accounts on what you're spending because there's just plenty of room. Um, maybe like me, I, I'm somewhat embarrassed to admit this. I, I find myself on occasion dreaming about winning the lottery. And I'm talking about winning one of the big lotteries, one of the big billboard lotteries. Uh, now, I know rationally that your chances of winning the lottery are, are incredibly small, and I don't actually buy lottery tickets, which makes my chances even smaller. Um, but that doesn't stop me from, from dreaming about it and thinking about what I would do with that money if I were financially free like that. Now, I, I, want, I want you to rest assured that in the back of my mind, I do have a plan to set up a charitable trust. And I'm looking forward to giving away huge amounts of money, but not all of it exactly, right? So uh, I, my, my wife sort of looks at me when I'm having these daydreams, but I really do. For you, what would, it, what would it feel like for you if you were financially free? And if you were, whatever your definition of financial freedom is, if you became that, would that do it for you? You know, would it, would, it, would it really, and over the long haul, scratch that itch, and would you feel content? Maybe. Let's pray. See what James has to say to us. Pray with me. Father, we come right now with these kinds of questions, for many of us very, for all of us, very pertinent questions about our money and thoughts about it. We come this morning to your word, where you promised to speak to us. So we pray right now as we read this and as we hear you speak to us that you would use your word to good effect in us. Open our hearts to your word and open your word to us. We ask this in the name of Jesus and that you would do it by his spirit. Amen. James chapter 5, we'll be looking at verses 1 through 6 this morning. Come now, you rich, weep and howl for the miseries that are coming upon you. Your riches have rotted and your garments are moth-eaten. Your gold and your silver have corroded and their corrosion will be evidence against you and will eat your flesh like fire. You've laid up treasure in the last days. Behold, the wages of the laborers who mowed your fields, which you kept back by fraud, are crying out against you and the cries of the harvesters have reached the ears of the Lord of hosts. 
You have lived on the earth in luxury and self-indulgence. You have fattened your hearts in a day of slaughter. You have condemned, you have murdered the righteous person. He does not resist you. The grass withers and the flowers fade, but the word of our Lord stands forever. So to it we turn with these very same questions we started with. What does it mean for us to be financially free? Because when we hear that term, financial freedom, we tend to think about the freedom that we think that our finances can provide for us. But James starts to talk to us about a financial freedom, not not a freedom that finances win for us, but a a freedom that we can have actually from our finances. A deeper financial freedom that James wants us to see because uh, maybe the way we look at our, our things and our possessions and our money, maybe that itself is a kind of bondage, a kind of trap, something that snares us, something that actually enslaves us, something, something that can never, never really give us the freedom that we really long for but instead something we actually need to be freed from. Those are the questions that James brings us this morning. It's what stands at the heart of this passage, a real and deep financial freedom. Not a freedom through, but a freedom from. Okay, so we're going to look at what James has to say to us about our finances this morning. We're going to look at three things. First, who is James talking to in this passage? What is it here that God actually condemns? And how can we then be truly financially free? Those three things here in James. First, who's he talking to? Okay, it doesn't take very long to, to read this passage. And, and even if you've been here with us for this whole series on James, you, you know especially that this passage is incredibly harsh. Now, we all know that just reading it. But even for James, James who can be very pointed, who can v- say very strong things to his people, this is very Strong. Look at what he says in verse 1. Come now, you rich, weep and howl for the miseries that are coming upon you. Talks about gold and silver and they will eat our flesh like fire. Talks about God being a judge here. That's the way he's being pictured. Uh, it's not the only picture of God in Scripture by any means, but it's certainly an important one. It talks about here when it, uh, it talks about the cries of the harvesters in verse 4, reaching the ears of the Lord of hosts. And he's picking up, James is picking up an Old Testament picture of God, the God who is the Lord of the hosts, the hosts of heaven, the armies of heaven, God who is in control and has the power to eventually bring justice and judgment. Picture of God in his power and attentiveness, frankly, a foreboding picture, isn't it? I mean, it's hard not to read these words and just feel the, the sobering effect of it, whether you read these and think, wow, look what it tells us about God, or wow, here I am in a church today and it's just reinforcing everything I thought I'd hear when I come to church, right? What, however you respond here, we clearly see a picture of God and his might and his power. And the judgment that he's talking about here is not simply some sort of like around the corner uh, financial judgment for the rich. It's not just that he's saying, you know, if you're not careful with your riches, then God's just going to snatch those away from you in a, a turn of the market or something. James has in mind uh, judgment with a big J, a capital J. He's talking about the judgment of Christ returning of the end of things, a final accounting of things. When he talks about we are in the last days, that's a phrase he uses here. And that's New Testament speak for the days uh, since Jesus came, his birth and death and resurrection, 
that started in the Bible's terms, the last days. And those days end with Jesus's return. It's it's a period of time, and we live in the midst of that time. We know when it started, and we don't know when it's going to end. And James reminds us that we live in the last days that culminate in this great day of judgment that God brings. Now, who's he talking to? I mean, he says here in verse 1, Come now, you rich. Okay, this is immediately when we start thinking, well, you know, I mean, rich? We, I know people who are rich. I'm not rich. Or is he talking about us? Or is he talking about somebody else? How rich do you have to be to be rich? Well, there's two, at least two stools of thought on, in this among commentators as people have, have read the Bible. Uh, there, there are two... Uh, possibilities of who he's referring to here. And there's some that'll say when, when he's speaking about the rich here, he's talking directly to the rich in the church. He's talking to rich Christians. I mean, if you look through the rest of James, everything else in the book of James is addressed to Christians in this church. Every time he says pointed things, it's to those who profess faith in Christ. And he's saying, are you living in a light of the faith that you profess? You know, he starts right here in verse, verse one, come now, Okay, if you were here last week, you can just look up a few verses above this. Verse 13 of chapter 4, when he's speaking to Christians, he says, Come now, you who say, he's using the same words to address maybe the same people. And, and also, why, you know, why, who else would he be addressing? I mean, why would you write a letter to Christians and address somebody who's not even there? Okay, those are some of the arguments that are put forward that he's speaking primarily to Christians. I think, though, that, that that's probably not the best interpretation of what's going on here. Instead, I think Jesus, excuse me, James, is speaking about non-Christian, non-believing, wealthy landowners who were in positions of great financial power in the world around them. It was a common theme in Greco-Roman literature of the time to address and to talk about the woes that are brought on by those who are rich and bring oppression into the lives of others. One reason I think that it's not, he's not speaking to uh, his, the church and these Christians here, because everywhere else in the, in the book, the book is, is, is pushing people towards repentance when James puts his finger on issues in people's lives. But here there's no call to repent. It is this very stark picture of doom that is coming. And he is standing in the line of Old Testament prophets who uh, pronounced these uh, proclamations of God's judgment coming on the nations around Israel. Now, some of the prophets spoke very directly to Israel and God's people, but there are also uh, books in the Bible of prophets who are speaking primarily to the world around them who weren't even reading the books. God was addressing his people and saying, let me tell you about the judgment that is coming on the world around you. Uh, and then when you get down to verse 7, we'll, get, we'll come to that next week. Notice the shift right there. He's been giving these words a very strong rebuke. And then verse 7, he says, Be patient, therefore, brothers, until the coming of the Lord. He's connecting that. He's saying, therefore, in light of all of what I'm saying about this judgment coming on the rich, he then turns back to the church and says, uh, Be patient, therefore, until the coming of the Lord. Okay, he is speaking to a church population that was under the thumb of very real financial and economic oppression in the world that they were facing. Uh, they were most likely, most of them, relatively poor believers. It would have been a mix, but they were, they were being oppressed, many of them, by the world around them. And he comes and speaks these words of comfort to them for a couple of reasons. One is he wants his people to know that there is a day of reckoning coming and that he cares about the oppression of the poor and the needy. And he's reminding his people that there is a day of reckoning coming. Your God sees, he knows, and he cares. 
Okay, I think that's primarily what's going on. And that might not resonate very strongly for most of us because we don't find ourselves in an economic situation like that in most cases. But maybe you might be able to go right across town and sit in in a service this very morning uh, in a um, Hispanic church with immigrants who are in town that are working for other people's businesses and who might be experiencing something very much like this, who would hear, wait, there's a day when our employers are going to treat us justly. Amen. Come, Lord Jesus. You might be able to go to other parts of the world to uh, believers in a small house church in somewhere in Asia and uh, find a congregation of people living in sweatshops, barely making enough to scrape by, and they would hear that one day there's going to be a day when things are made right. Amen. Now, most of us are not in that situation, but he does speak this word to us as well. Because let me say this, though he is speaking to comfort the church and to remind them of a day of judgment that's coming, of course, it has something to say to us as well. As he does in every warning in scripture, because if to any degree we look and we find ourselves in these pages, when we look into this description and find this call into account our own way of looking at our wealth, then of course we are called to account too before a God who cares. So he speaks very directly to us, though we were in many ways not the primary or first audience for what he is saying here. Okay, so it is spoken to those who are bringing oppression and spoken to us in our own wrestling with our own wealth today. Okay, that's who he's speaking to. But second thing, what is it that God condemns? I mean, if... In language this harsh, we need to be very clear. What is, what is the problem that James and God are putting their finger on? Look with me through the passage. There are four things that James condemns these rich oppressors for. Go back to verses 2 and 3. Your riches have rotted and your garments are moth-eaten. Your gold and silver have eroded and their corrosion will be evidence against you. And will eat your flesh like fire. You have laid up treasure in the last days. The first thing he puts his finger on is this group of people that are laying up treasure in the last days. Again, as we've said, the last days, the days since the coming of Jesus and as we await his return, we stand, though we don't know how long this period of time will last, you know, at the very crux of history here as Jesus has come and he's returning. And James says to these rich oppressors, he says, here you are at this such significant point in history, even now in the last days, and you are storing up treasures. And he goes on, I mean, notice what he talks about. He's talking about these riches, these, these garments, you know, clothes that are moth-eaten. They're riches and wealth that are corroding. Well, what's, he t- what's he talking about? You know, when, when do things get moth-eaten? When do things corrode? Well, when they're being stored up and unattended and unused, right? I mean, that's when your clothes get moths, when they're in the back of your closet and you haven't put them on for years, you haven't attended to him. That's when, that's when things start to rot and erode when you're not doing the upkeep because they're not being really used very often. What he is saying to these people is, look, you are storing up things for yourself that you are not even using that are just rotting away. Things that could be used very well somewhere else are being stockpiled by you and taken out of the stream of human goods that could be bringing relief to the people around you. He says, you're storing stuff up and it's rotting. He says, one day when the judge comes, those rotting clothes, that rotting treasure of yours, he says, is going to stand as a witness against you and against us, corroding when it could have been put to good use. He says, laying up treasure in the last days. Second thing he condemns these rich for us. He says they've been, che- they've been cheating their workers. Verse 4. 
Behold, the wages of the laborers who mowed your fields, which you kept back by fraud, are crying out against you. And the cries of the harvesters have reached the ears of the Lord of hosts. Often in Scripture, especially in the Old Testament, we see God's care for the poor, for uh, the sojourner who comes into the land, for the worker, for those who are living on the edge of sustenance. And uh, here's just one example. This comes from Deuteronomy chapter 24, verses 14 and 15, where it says this, You shall not oppress a hired servant who is poor and needy, whether he's one of your brothers or one of the sojourners who are in your land within your towns. You shall give him the wages on the same day before the sun sets, for he is poor and he counts on it, lest he cry out against you to the Lord and you will be guilty of sin. Okay, this is a part of God's care for his people. And, he, and James addresses these folks and he says, look, you're oppressing these workers. Maybe that means that they are not paying on time. and They're making their workers unjustly wait for their wages when their very daily life depends on it. Or maybe... They're being underpaid. They're being cheated at the end of the day, not given full recompense for the work they've done. Or maybe these people are simply walking away with the money in their back pockets and not paying their workers at all. It's the second thing. You're oppressing your workers. Third thing, he says, you are living on the earth in luxury and self-indulgence. Verse 5. You lived on the earth in luxury and self-indulgence. You fattened your hearts in a day of slaughter. See, he is condemning their life of luxury and self-indulgence. He says, you know, you, it's the, the day of slaughter is at hand. Very graphic picture of there's a day of judgment that's coming. And here, even in the midst of that, says to these people, all you are concerned about is your own advancement, your own comfortable living, your own luxuriousness. He says you are doing that in the face of coming judgment, living on the earth in luxury and self-indulgence. And then the last thing he Convicts him of, number four, for oppressing the righteous. Verse six, you have condemned, you have murdered the righteous person. He does not resist you. Likely James has in mind simply the average follower of Jesus that James is addressing here in the rest of the letter. His church, he's saying the righteous ones, not righteous by any great standing of their own, but those who have been loved by God and given his righteousness, those who are God's people. He says you are, you are oppressing them, you are murdering them. Though they don't oppose you. Might be referring to literal murder. Might simply be referring to the fact that when you are oppressing people like this, when you are taking away their livelihood, when you're robbing them of your wages, you are consigning them to starve. You are, you are killing them. Again, this was a common stream of thought in the day. There's an Old Testament piece of literature written a couple hundred years before the coming of Jesus called the Book of Sirach, uh, which would have been well known to James and his audience. And in Sirach, it says this in one place. It says, to take away a neighbor's living is to murder him. To deprive an employee of his wages is to shed his blood. Look at this very dark picture of what he says these people are doing, these four things that they're doing to break apart society. Because we see here a picture of an underlying disease of greed and of fear. We see here a picture of what happens when the fall, when our fall into sin and our fall away from God is applied to our finances and our money. It drives us to an incredible fear. Is there going to be enough? Am I going to be able to take care of myself? And an incredible greed. Am I going to be able to take care of myself to the degree to which I deserve and have earned and 
long for and aspire to? Am I going to be able to live in luxury and self-indulgence? It does not matter what's happening in the world around me. All I have to think about is myself, my family, my clan, whoever's closest to me. It is about me. It's the fall applied to our finances. And James comes to speak against it. Now, that's the picture that he paints. To the degree to which we look and we see that this bears some close resemblances to our own lives, how are we going to be free? How are we going to live a life different than this? How is something other than this going to be true for us? How can we know a true financial freedom? Because as we're reminded time and again in the pages of Scripture, that the coming of Jesus and His kingdom, for those of us who step into it, or, or who are, better way of saying it, are grabbed by it, those of us in the kingdom of God, when God's kingdom comes, it is going to challenge and does challenge every other kingdom. If God is king, no one else can be. If God's kingdom is to be the ultimate reality for us in our lives as we follow Jesus, and that means every other kingdom takes second place. If God's kingdom is the one that is right and just and true, then that means it brings up questions for us about every other kingdom that impinges upon us. And that means that if we're going to think about our money and our wealth in kingdom ways, then we have to expect God to challenge those too. Challenges every other kingdom and system. And in the realm of finances, that means it comes and it challenges capitalism. It just does. It challenges our consumerism. And it challenges any other ism that you might put up next to those as well. Everything about the way we look at money, everything about the way our world devises it is called into question by our following Jesus because he came to bring a different kind of kingdom. And it means we have to always be asking ourselves, are we doing with our wealth, are we looking at our money the way God would call me to, are we using it for what he has called me to? I might, we might be fine, better than fine in the eyes of the society and culture around us. But are we being blind to the standards of God's kingdom and the better picture he gives us? And that kind of critique is going to make us uncomfortable. Makes me uncomfortable. Makes me uncomfortable this week. How are we going to be truly financially free? I think two things we see here. We're going to have to embrace God's perspective on wealth. And we're going to have to embrace God's provision of wealth. Okay, first, embrace God's perspective on wealth. If you take these four things that James has condemned and you spin them around and turn them into something more like principles that James would then defend, I, th- I think here are, some, here are three things that come out of this. Three principles about God's perspective on wealth. The first is this, that we are to use the resources that God entrusts to us for the good of others. We're to use what God entrusts us for the good of others. You know, remember his picture of the gold and the silver that's being hoarded, the clothes that are rotting away. Here's what John Calvin said about that. He says, God has not appointed gold for rust, nor garments for moths. But on the contrary, he's designed them as aids and helps to human life. So he says they can't be rotting in our closets or decaying in our barns. Or wasting away in our bank accounts. Same thing Jesus said. Matthew chapter 6. He says, Do not lay up for yourselves treasures on earth where moth and rust destroy and where thieves break in and steal. But lay up for yourselves treasures in heaven where neither moth nor rust destroys, where thieves do not break in and steal. For where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. Jesus himself said, We have to think about the way we use our money. James says we're not to store it up. 
Or if you're using the NIV, it says we're not to hoard it. Okay, now we can very easily look at the Bible, talk about its bigger picture of financial faithfulness, and we can rest assured that God does, of course, call us to be financially responsible, and part of that means appropriate saving. Okay, now I don't have to talk about that this morning because I don't have to convince you of that. And I don't have to convince me of that. But what he does say is, is our picture of saving, is it in line with the values of God's kingdom? Is it saving or is it hoarding? Is it saving or is it storing up? Is it keeping things out of the realm in which they could bring blessing and help to others and simply being stored up for our own use one day? Is it hard to tell the difference? Yes. Yes. The three easy steps for you to go home and look at your finances and figure out if you're saving appropriately or you're hoarding? No. You got a much harder assignment. I have a much harder assignment. Jesus, what would you have me do with my money? Jesus, look at my bank account. How much do you want in there and how much is just me not trusting you or me being overly careful or me just not being risky enough and not using it for good in the world? He would ask us that question in the middle of economic downturn. He asks us that even today. And he asks us to ask ourselves the hard questions. So the first one, the first principle there is, you know, Use the resources God entrusts you for the good of others. Secondly, spend without living in luxury and self-indulgence. Spend without living in luxury, self-indulgence. One of the commentators I read this week said this, In the Western world where amassing material wealth is not only condoned but admired, we Christians need to come to grips with this point in James and ask ourselves seriously, when do we have too much? Okay, now relax because... um, Some of you are afraid at this point I'm going to ask you some question like this. You know, are you using your money badly? Is your use of money off track from what God would have you do? And don't worry, I'm not going to ask you that question because it is. Your money is off track. My money is off track. The question is where and how and how much. And Jesus, what would you have us do? We are all financial disasters, even the most careful of us. We're all hooked by this. The question is not, does this apply to us, but how? Lord, what would you have us do? What would you have us change? What would you have us examine? You know, am am I hoarding rather than releasing? Am I just feeding my luxury and my self-indulgence? How nice a car do I need? How nice a home do I need? How nice can the furniture be that I buy? There's no clear scriptural answer other than you have got to ask these questions. And you've got to pray. And you've got to seek God's wisdom, and you have to let it challenge you, and it has to challenge me. Our basic posture needs to be a fundamental distrust of our own financial instincts. So what are we going to do? Well, Scripture says that we're to come to it to ask the questions. What does Scripture teach us about what God values and how we're to value? We're to go and pray, Lord, how do I apply this in my life? And here's maybe the scarier part. Uh, Maybe we ought to be people who distrust ourselves enough that we ought to go to people that we do trust and say, here are my finances as an open book. Am I using them well or am I fooling myself? Am I blind and I can't even see it myself? Are we willing to ask those kind of questions? Third thing, after spend our money without living in luxury and self-indulgence, Honor the labor of others. We see the way these rich have misused the labor of others, not cared for those uh, that they, to whom they were beholden for work. 
We're to honor the labor of others. Some of us uh, are, or at some point in the past, were employers. If you're an employer, then you are responsible to pay your workers a just wage. And that might not be the same thing as what the state sets for a minimum wage. What is a right wage? But many of us, most of us, are not in that situation where we have employees, but we have to ask the same kind of question as consumers. You know, what about the plumber's bill that's still on your desk? You're going to get around to it, right? But are you withholding it? What about the unpaid bills that we might get to, but we have so many other priorities first to f- care for ourselves and to live in luxury? What about, what about, what about? Uh, I was reminded this week of um, just a uh, story back when uh, both Camper and I, it was years ago, we were in uh, North Carolina in Chapel Hill, Hill working in the University of North Carolina with a Christian ministry, working with college students, trying to help them as they walk through their college years, figure out more and more of what it means to be disciples of Jesus, to bring every area of their lives under the lordship of Christ, to live lives, whatever calling they'd be sent out into after school, in ways that are honoring God and his kingdom. And I remember, uh, with sadness now, I remember this, this one juncture in Carol, at, at Carolina, uh, which is, as you know, a, a, an athletic powerhouse, go Tar Heels. Well, uh, at one point in our, in our tenure there, uh, Nike was courting uh, the University of North Carolina. And I can't remember if it was to, uh, to renew a contract they had with them or to get a new contract. But they were going to be the sole you know, athletic equipment providers, and they'd get the branding rights for, for everything that Carolina does, a huge money-making deal for them. And I remember, you know, in the middle of what was going on of, of this, that the school newspaper, that there were people writing about uh, just up in arms. There were demonstrations by students over the fact that Nike was here getting rich off Carolina or about to. But if you were to look at their practices overseas in the sweatshops that were providing all of the equipment that was coming our way, these people were being treated in unbelievably miserable ways and conditions buying things incredibly cheaply so that we could profit off of them. And there are all these students just up in arms about it. And there I am, you know, chugging around with my Bible under my arm, doing Bible studies, thinking, what are these guys jabbering on about, right? There I was, wanting my students to know what it means to follow Jesus, and, but what are these people doing? And I look back just in sadness, not because of what I was doing, but because of what I was not doing. Christians should have been at the very forefront of some of those movements and voices saying, look, if we're going to follow Jesus, then we have to care about the poor. We have to care about where we get our goods. We have to care about the person in the sweatshop on the other side of the planet on whose backs we are making all our wealth. That is not something other than Christian discipleship. That is a part of Christian discipleship. And it just went right past me. But James is saying that we have to honor the labor of others if we're going to follow Jesus faithfully. And that's a complex thing in a complex global economy. But James says, there you have it. You have to care. These three principles about not hoarding, about not living in luxury, about honoring the labor of others. They can be summed up as simply this. Love your neighbor as yourself applied to our finances. Love your neighbor as yourself applied to your wealth, to your savings account, to the cash in your back pocket. That's what James wants us to do. And he wants us to spend ourselves asking the hard questions of what does it mean to do that as individuals and as a community.
Okay, how are we going to be truly financially free? As we just said, we're going to, we have to embrace God's perspective on wealth, that wealth is for these things. But secondly, we have to embrace God's provision of wealth, because we're not going to be free to do this unless we know that we are being cared for ourselves. And that comes up at least two ways. One is that we have to be people who trust God the Son, not our wealth, to be our Savior. We have to be people who trust Jesus, not our money, to be our Savior. We have to be people that trust that He is the one who has us in His hands. We have to trust that the most significant debt in the universe has already been paid for us. Our debt of sin to God, our falling from Him, has been restored and healed and forgiven in Jesus. And He is now our King. We have to bank on Him as our Savior. Not on the fleetingness of our wealth and our possessions. Some of us have been reminded in very sharp ways these last number of months that wealth might not endure. What then? James says, what then? You are in the hands of Jesus. It is okay. We're going to have to be people who trust God the Son, not our wealth, to be our Savior. And secondly, we're going to have to be people who trust God the Father, not our wealth, to be our provider. That with our salvation that comes to us in Jesus, we get the provision of Jesus' Father and our Father, God in heaven. Listen to what he says, Jesus says in Matthew 6. He sums it up this way, he tells this story. He says, Therefore I tell you not to be anxious about your life, what you will eat or what you will drink, not about your body, what you'll put on. Is not life more than food and the body more than clothing? Look at the birds of the air, they neither sow nor reap nor gather into barns, and yet your heavenly Father feeds them. Are you not of more value than they? Which of you, by being anxious, can add a single hour to a span of life? And why are you anxious about clothing? Consider the lilies of the field, how they grow. They neither toil nor spin. Yet I tell you, even Solomon in all his glory was not arrayed like one of these. But if God so clothes the grass of the field, which today is alive and tomorrow is thrown into the oven, will he not much more clothe you, O you of little faith? Therefore, do not be anxious, saying, What shall we eat, or what shall we drink, or what shall we wear? For the Gentiles seek after all these things, and your heavenly Father knows that you need them all. But seek first the kingdom of God and His righteousness, and all these things will be added to you. There's a Father taking care of us. He knows what you need. He knows what I need. He says, Do not be afraid. Do not be afraid. Be wise, be prayerful, be courageous, be generous, but do not be afraid. Let's pray. Father, we do pray that you would teach us how to love our neighbor with our finances, our resources, our wealth. We would follow you and your kingdom in this that we would see where your kingdom challenges the kingdoms around us. And you'd give us the courage to let go of the things that maybe we've been holding on to. Grab hold instead to your hand, which is right there, to steady us. Lord, may we be um, generous people. May we be people that give in such a way and with such priorities that there are very clearly things that the world around us tells us that we so desperately need for our life to be complete, that we will just have to forgo because there's no room in it because we're using our money for better purposes. And in that way, may we find joy, the joy of you, as we act like you in generous ways 
living out the generosity you have poured into us. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen.